1.1 million of those people live in Adelaide. So that's why my accents are different to like a normal Australian accent. It's just sort of we're a bit more removed from, you know, it's a bit more isolated. But, yeah, it's all in Adelaide, uh, which also sort of meant that everybody had to get to places. And so we had that what's called the, the tyranny of distance where someone 5Ks away, 10Ks away, 8Ks away, or, you know, even around the corner or in the same suburb, but you'd congregate on the one house and stay there for a weekend and you'd do that two or three weekends in a month, you know, and then it would just... Now, now what I think is interesting is that you started playing so early uh, in the the development of D&D when you were in Australia. So... Uh, it sounds like Dungeons and Dragons was obviously at that point in time making its way across the world, right? Because I would have thought, and you know, I. Oh, you know, it's just amazing. What we didn't get was things like a uh, Dragon Magazine. You had to find whatever, you know, you had to find the specific stores that had um, these arrangement supplies and, and everything else, and they weren't easy to find. Where you'd end up meeting other people that were like minded because you'd be like, okay, well, you know, the only people who would go to this one store were. <laughs> people looking for D&D stuff, so the old rap path of miniatures or New York, you know. And that's why, of course, back in the day, you made sure to put your name in your book because it was such a big deal. If you lost your book, it wasn't, you know, it isn't like now where we're able to go buy another one easily. If, if you bought a book and you lost it, you probably weren't going to be able to afford to get another one. Uh, so, uh, David. Yeah. Can I also ask you too? Did you had you played war games? So a lot of us had played war games before we came to Dungeons and Dragons. Did you have any background in war gaming? Uh, there was um, there were two games played that were basic battle type. You know, you'd have your fold up maps and you'd have your little plat- uh, your little cardboard chits. You had the cardboard cut out out, and uh, you'd play on the you know it'd be mm-hmm. an Avalon Hill product or it'd be a, like something old, one of the old style games that were you know you'd roll a few dice, and then that's where um, one of the one of the games I had, which I can't remember the name of, on on the back of it. So the, the rule book, which was, you know, a single A4 sheet of paper, A5 booklet type sort of thing, it had, if you have any questions, add a self-addressed stamp, stamped envelope, um, no more than five questions. And they well, had to figure it out. Yeah, um, I, I am the typical ignorant of American. I had to look up uh, Adelaide, where it was on the map of Australia. And I'm like, oh, wow, that is, you said it's out there. It's, uh, it's on the south end. So uh, that's interesting. Now, have you, you know, so for many of us, you know, we took a long time off. Did you continue playing? Have you been playing since the late 70s, or did you take a, a hiatus like many of us did? No, uh, yeah, uh, I took a hiatus uh, when uh, um, I pretty much from about uh, 93 to 94 would have been the last time that I played. I was traveling overseas, I uh, went back to I just went, just traveled around a little bit and had a few games in the UK with some people that I met up. And um, but then when coming back to Australia again, I uh, abandoned it, but it was just, you know, life gets in the way and you get married and you get kids. And then I met up with a few other people who were suddenly discovering it. And this is roughly a handful of years ago when uh, fifth edition started. These guys had never seen D&D before. And that. I was like, oh, yeah. You know, well, I've been playing. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a reason it's called Fifth. Where have you been? <laughs> Can you? So, have you? So, do you have so, a, a fifth edition group now? I know. I know. 
I helped my kids with some of their um, initial groups just because they were, you know, oh, well, that's, you know, I'd, I'd, I suppose, you know, DM'd a few sessions in that regard and um, sort of been providing advice to some people. David, if you, because I missed some of that, so are you currently playing first edition? Do you have a group? No, no, I don't have any groups um, running at the moment. But, so, um, but I've sort of been, I have uh, um, recently been helping some people with their adventure and how to uh, be a DM, I suppose, because I think the, the new books sort of have everything so prescribed in the way that characters are and the monsters are and everything else that that level of creativity, um, when they have to move off script, it's a little bit harder for them. Yeah, and um, I think that's my understanding is that's a big difference, I guess, between old school and new school. Right? I know Matt Finch has talked about this in his primer for old school gaming. How uh, old school gaming it was much more you just kind of roll with it, so to speak. Uh, everything's not set out. You don't have a rule for everything. You just sort of wing it. And uh, I I like that style quite a bit. Uh, maybe we could shift to your ebooks because those are pretty impressive. Um, they're not pretty impressive, very impressive. Yeah. Um, it's something that Thank I. You. Yeah, it, no, it's very impressive. It's something that I started, as, as James knows, and, and James, you've contributed to it as well, which is sort of trying to restate, so to speak, the rules um, in a fashion that's maybe a little bit easier to understand and collected. Uh, in a little bit more organized fashion. I mean, the DMG is an amazing book. I agree with you completely. But at times, it can be a bit unwieldy, uh, and the rules are spread out all over the place. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about what your ebooks are and why you decided to write them. It was to help people to understand something that I enjoyed that was very difficult for people to uh, um, to. If you said to somebody, here's the book, you know, they're sort of assuming that the rules are in there and they're sort of assuming that, oh, wow, it's going to teach me how to play, which is not the case. So um, I had some people that I was working with, some younger folk, like they were in, in the 20s. They were wanting to play a first edition D&D. And so I wrote up the initial cheat sheet and about two or three pages. And that's when I realised how much I sort of had sitting around in my head, just rattling around when my son wanted to play a first edition game with his friend, um, same thing there. And it was putting it all together and getting it all happening. And it just sort of went from there. And it was like, well, okay, well, I've got a lot to write on all of this. And I wrote it just for therapy. And, uh, and I thought, well, I should put it up on one of those many blog website type things. And there's a local group called Tableau, which is just a, you know, a free Melbourne-based site that does these, you know, you've seen it. It's just a... Um, like WordPress, and I just published on that. So put it all up there, and then as I was doing it, I was like, well, okay, you know, started doing each of the classes. I think I've got the Paladin, the Druid, and uh, the Fighter to sort of knock up. Can you talk about your view on Unearthed Arcana? Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't like it, sorry. Thank you. It no, was, just, it just, don't apologize. You, no. should be, you should be rewarded. That's right. Oh, it's more of a case that it's the way how I always read it. You didn't have to have a yeah. barbarian class. Correct. You could play a ranger as a barbarian or a fighter as a barbarian or even really a paladin as a barbarian, depending on the type of religious structure, that, how you want to hold the paladinic powers. And that's what I loved about the first edition AD&D was just if you wanted to say, right, I'm a pirate. Well, you're a pirate. If you wanted to say that you're a swashbuckling 
Robin Hood, you can do that because it came down to how you want to play your character rather than, right, here's my class that says that I'm uh, this, a gladiator, uh, a, um, a class that says I'm an Amazon, this is how I always felt it anyway. And that's sort of how I always ran it. Well, well, well James liked it because he always wanted to be a Snurveblin or whatever that. I didn't want to be a Snurveblin. That's, that's, that's a, a, a can you can you talk about your opinion on illusionists? Oh, I know his opinion, and a particular gnome illusionist. Well, see, if you don't, I want to show that I read at least Perus's. I even wrote in one of my notes. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know why you continued after your statement in illusionist. You said for many, the illusionist is a throwaway character. You should have just ended it there. But you tr then you try to redeem the character class. So I'll I'll allow. And, and, and you think he should have excised for many. Right. Just, yeah. The illusionist is a throwaway character. Yeah, period. Maybe, maybe James can be your editor. Yeah, I could edit that for you. <laughs> There's a typo. That's right. That would be very, you'd be done with illusionist. You wouldn't have to continue much on, but. Um, what character are you playing now, James, in that game? So just out of curiosity, what's like, what are you playing? A paladin, a human paladin, well, half-elf ranger. You know, part of the game for me is accepting the characters, mm -hmm. and which was the most challenging to survive, and so I picked a fighter gnome illusionist. Gotcha. All right. and yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much it, yeah. I mean, you're looking at a, what, 7-Eleven as the maximum if you're lucky, yeah. something like that. Uh, oh, no, I think... Um, or is it six? I think it's like six and seven or five. That's or really seven. high. Why do people even think about level limits? If well, the level limits are a concern in your game, your levels are getting you're getting too high. Well, <laughs> and with John, you know, you heard on the phone, who who's the third DM for us, um, he's taken Dan's level of player character killing. We have a graveyard Dang. on our on our meetup site where we put all the de deceased characters. Uh, uh, John has almost doubled that amount on there just just in his first small. See, this short is campaign. see, this is my this is my plan. Right. You guys were all upset about all the the, the high mortality rate in my game. I'm yeah. like, you know what I'll do? I'm going to hand it over to John. Yeah. You'll wish you had me. Yeah. Is, is a 30, 30, 25% survival rate is that good? Because that's what happened at a village of Hamlet. The introductory module. Right. Got not, not not a 25% yeah. mortality rate. There's yeah. a lot of death. Yeah. So. Um, Kind of going back, I, I don't have a problem with illusionists. I'm getting, I'm coming to terms with them. Okay. You just need a good DM to do that, and, and in fact, that's what uh, that's what David talks about. So, you know, I, I like the word that you use, deconstruction uh, of that. You know, because it has a sense of you're trying to present AD and D as not as this dense tomes of complexity and, like you said, Gygaxian vocabulary, but. Um, I think still there's the challenge. You mentioned it about, you know, it, they kind of, kind of just dumps you in, that you assume a sub things. Do you think they assumed you played basic, either Moldvay or Holmes? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They just assumed that, yeah, which probably was right because the people who uh, got the first lot of work the, were people who had the older box sets or the played the older, you know, chain. Now they, they'd played those games and it was all of, you know, Gary Gygax and his crew's, you know, people and people that they knew that they brought in. <clears throat> so <clears throat> absolutely. So absolutely. They just, there was, that's why it opens up with <clears throat> welcome to this thing. And here you go, by the way, the first two pages 
sort of assumes you don't know what you're doing, but then after page three or four, we're going to assume that you know everything. You know, that, you know it's just... <laughs> yeah, because it's, um, you know, I like, like Dan, I started in 83. I think I got the basic box, but it came after. And part of our thing was, well, why do I want to play basic? I'm going to play advanced. And so it really was learning the game. We had a couple of friends like you who are a couple of years older, um, but we started with advanced and then stole things out of basic. Um, but I think the assumption was you'd pick up the basic book, you'd learn the game, and then you'd go to the advanced one. So um, I know you tr it's, it's interesting you, in, in your eBooks, you try to say, okay, well, Here's the things you missed, especially in the player's handbook one, that if you didn't play basic. So I thought that was good. Um, you could have just said, hey, just play basic, which which was nice that you didn't do that. Uh, That's where I'm heading. But Holmes basic. Well, Holmes basic was just through level three, yeah. right? It was supposed to be yeah. play up to level three and then you'd go, you, it was supposed to be for people to- The gateway it. drug. It's the right. gateway drug. Right, right. So I, I've decided AD&D has too many rules. Right. It's, well, it's rules overload. This podcast will be changing. So we'll, we'll grog talk, not AD&D talk. So that's okay. The Holmes, yeah. What, how many <laughs> listeners do you think we'd have if we were like the Holmes Basic podcast? You well, think we don't? We think we have a small audience now. The Holmes Basic. I, I think there's a lot of people who are very committed to Holmes Basic. I think they they there are. Strong groups, and you can see them when they sort of get out there. I've looked at a couple of other different types of podcasts, uh, ADD and so on. Because especially over the last couple of years, it's been interesting to see other people's take on the game, and the commentary back is very much wow. I didn't realize that following for the, the basic set and the basic rules and so on. So, and it's just a new way of. Uh, I don't have to yeah. deal with the following. Well, I think it's what you fall in love with. It's the first thing, like you said, you started with that. Your first love. Right. You it's... never forget your first love. Exactly. David, now I'd be interested to know why, you know, I think you said, right, these, these, this younger generation was, was interested in playing a game of first edition. Uh, I'd be interested to know why. So, you know, what was it about, did they... Did you get the sense that they just wanted to play it the way Gygax did back in the day, or did they actually sense that they wanted to get a feel of what first edition was like and how it was perhaps different from fifth edition? Yeah, no, entirely that. It was, it was I mean, the, the handful of people had played, like everything at the time, um, a few people had played first edition D&D, and that, oh, wow, and then it led to... From there went to, oh, I suppose we should just give it a shot, see what it's like. They got their hands on a rule book one, and I, just, I, I, actually, I don't understand a thing that's in here. Right, we're still figuring it out. Yeah. So, so this is how you do a fight. This is how you do it. This is how it sort of works. And this is how an interpretation on how this is. And they said, well, what do you mean by an interpretation on this? I said, well, it's sort of up in the air. But, yeah, so – and. Uh, I suppose it's uh, one of the questions that you had in your email out was, you know, he's so lasting. And this is exactly it. It's like Star Wars. We had it as kids. Our, the next generation had it. The next generation after had it. And our kids have got it, you know. So it seems to be something that bridges 
few generations and people will fall in love with an aspect of it where they can say, right, I like being a two-weapon-wielding ranger that just turns every every orc into a blood mist. So, yep. what, what I think is interesting, I don't know if any of you have been following Stephen Colbert's reintroduction to Dungeons & Dragons. You know, Stephen Colbert hasn't played since he got out of college and, and he started getting a little bit interested in it again and, and he ran it he went and played in a, a, a solo charity game with with matt mercer uh who i wasn't familiar with who i guess is, is a famous dm now and Mer- matt mercer was explaining to stephen colbert his character he's explaining how i think he's like half dragon or something and yeah. you're like colbert you know last edition colbert knows his first edition right. so that would be like saying to me you know, explaining that you're yeah, a dragon. Is I'm a dragon, and I think Gobert was a bit startled. It really is sort of like for a lot of us, it's like Han Solo coming out of Carbonite, you know, and right. learning that Luke's a Jedi and all this. It, it's the things that you can be now in Fifth Edition um, is quite startling to a lot of us who who haven't played in a long time. Uh, but David, I'd be interested to get your opinion on the survivability of First Edition proper, so to speak. So, uh, you know, we know, of course, that there's a lot of retro clones out there, Osric and Dungeon Crawl Classics, things like that. Is, it, you know, if if first edition had a feel, which is different from other editions, and it's a feel that is attractive to, to some segments of players, even a new generation of players, should they play these retro clones, which are presumably, you know, easier to understand, better organized. And that's, I'm not trying to criticize Gygax here, because I think Gygax, it was amazing. I mean, to turn out these volumes and the amount of time, it was amazing. Right. But is there, is other than for either, you know, because look, we're going to be gone, you know, at some point. We're back to this again. Back to this again, right? This is wait. Yeah, no, this is a segment. What's our segment? Uh, in, incomprehensible death. This is we're, we're transitioning to the incomprehensible death segment. I don't understand. are not going to be here. That's right. And right. now, that's right. I got to right. come up with a bumper for that. So, so you know, for a lot of us who are perhaps playing it for nostalgia, that's why you have a segment of players out there. They're still playing it, but for a new generation that wants a feel, a grittier feel that first edition had. Should they just be playing some of these retro clones? Is that the future of the feel as opposed to first edition? Or do you think there is, do you think first edition is going to survive the generation that played it? Um, I think that the hardest part, the, the biggest challenge for first edition is that for a new generation coming through, it, it's they're looking at it going, well, why would I play first when I can play fifth or sixth? And you very much have to have a first ed person saying, no, 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 try this, try this, try this for that to happen. And that's, and that's in part why I also put as much of this up as I possibly could in my mind is to get that up there is just so that way, if anybody was looking at it going, what is this one day, someone in, in 50 years time, someone's going to pick up a, a book from go, what is this incomprehensible script? And what is he talking about? And then they do a quick search on it. Oh, well, there's a deconstruction of the whatever, or there's all these view, blogs on this and so on. And I think that it's only going to survive well, I mean, it doesn't really have to survive because Wizards of the Coast certainly don't care if it survives or not. It's entirely down to us. So, um, you know, going through the books, so, you know, just uh, for, our, for our listeners, you have a, you start with the player's handbook, then the DMG, uh, and then you had the classes, Sans, the Druid, and 
Paladin. How did you figure out what content should go into which book? Because that really is, I think, a challenge as well. The newer games, or the newer versions, have basically said everything you need to play is in the player's handbook, and everything else is kind of uh, supplemental. Um, and then, and that's partly what um, we have to do as first edition AD and is, is go through two or three books. I mean, when um, my son created one of his characters, or well, one of the characters for his friends, in his like they did uh, N one the. Um, Cult of the Reptile. Uh, the Reptile, yeah, Cult of the Reptile. Yeah. So they did that one, which, they, you know, a few, they'd already played some fifth ed and everybody was living it and they all loved it and that was fantastic. They all played this first ed version and had played N1 and I think only one character survived. So <laughs> it's just like... Sounds great. What was, what was their reaction? So I'm always like to hear from people who have played both fifth edition, because I've never played fifth edition. Well, that's not true. I played it once. Um at a convention, it was the only slot. There was no first edition. Do I need to explain? Yeah, yeah I really don't. No one cares. Experiment. <laughs> I, was, I was back in college. I played fifth edition. I was edition. in college with this. I was experimenting. Yeah. Yeah, There's a video. You were one. young and impressionable. You were young and impressionable. <laughs> I was. I was. So uh, what uh, What was the reaction? Did they talk about the differences that they, as they perceived them between first edition and fifth edition? Yeah, well, there was a lot more um, coaching for um, my son is the DM because he had to really understand more of how the rules worked, and because obviously there were the, the, the funky bits. And he wanted to play as much as first ed. He wanted to play as much as rules as people could handle. You know, so oh, I, I sort of call it rules as much as the players can take is what I call it, where you include whatever you think that they can handle, which for him and his crew. They included things like the weapon class adjustments for, you know, weapon adjustments for armor class. Um, it included, you know, level limits and racial, you know, the the, pro, you know, the different types of races and the, the stats and so on. Um, spell casting, you know, like he did as much as everybody could handle, which was cool. And um, they they couldn't believe how it was more of a case of, do I make the jump? Yeah, you do. No, you don't. You know, there was a lot more of that as opposed to, oh, there's a stat check. Let's do this. And you've got what you're running, what you're jumping, what, you know, all the skills and all of the, the it was all, you know, you get a character sheet with just some numbers on it. And it's like, well, okay, what can I do? Well, what do you want to do? You know, so that that's the thing that they found was the, the most different for, between the two classes like the, of fifth ed to first ed and so but when he was playing that you know he was making up his characters for he made up the characters for the he talked to them as to what classes that they wanted to be and they sort of had an idea so uh, they you know a couple of them wanted to be fighters or fight you know and he sort of explained how things happen and he said to save time he was going to make up some characters so the first character he made up was an elven fighter magic user i think and had to go through the monster manual the dm's guide and the player's handbook to be able to sort something out i was like this is just crazy he's like what, what, what i have to go it's like what am i am i studying something it's like i've got books all over this table <laughs> and it's like well yeah that's how we did it <laughs> That's it. It was uh, ingenious. I'm sure it was. It was accidental to make sure you bought all the books, even though you're not as a as a player. You're not supposed to have all those books. So again, like you mentioned in your um, almost, it's almost like the preface in the players one that the it wasn't a standalone set, uh, thing for a player to do. You really had you were dependent on the dungeon master to to do anything with that because there was so much. 
of the game that was hidden from you. Uh, mm. So that was interesting. So do you think you were successful in your deconstruction? And if you, uh, what, what would you have done different? Or have you gotten any feedback from folks? Yeah, there are a few questions that have come back, you know, because people have sort of obviously gone, how does this, well, we did it this way. Is that wrong? Uh, or those sort of, and well, there's no right or wrong answer for some of those types of questions. I think the, what I had more questions about, which was something that you mentioned, I think way back in like three or four episodes, three or four of your um, own podcast was regarding the, the grappling overbearing and oh, yeah. <laughs> those were all, <laughs> and especially how it went with the monk, because you have a monk and so, well, so the, why is the monk different to normal everything else? And so I sort of had to add, so I added a bit of extra onto the back of the monk. All of these are living documents as I'm rediscovering a rule or as uh, an idea of how this rule can be interpreted in a different way or how this character class can be perceived in this way, I've thrown, I've gone back to revisit. So some of the these documents I've touched up three or four times, you know, to be able to um, put them up on to put them up there, so that way I, it's not just he's a ranger, and I'm just copying everything that's in the player's handbook on rangers. It's like no, no, he's a ranger. You can play it like this. Imagine being a sailor, where you can do it this way. You know, you don't have to just be the ranger like Aragorn, which is obviously where ranger comes from. But you know, you can be a, a barbarian style ranger, or an Arctic ranger, or a desert, you know, a desert dweller, a Bedouin style. You know, like there's all different. But you've got to bring that to the actual table when you're creating the character. And I suppose as I'm trying to sort of highlight that and put that forward, I'm trying to not take over in terms of saying, well, I'm a DM and this is what I do. It's, I've tried to, I think I've done that maybe a bit, but I've tried to make sure that it's been very much more, here's a way of interpreting this, you know, and it doesn't have to be like this as a DM or as a player. You can ask to make changes to make it look like this so it fits and, you know, rather than just thinking, right, hear noise, all I can do is listen to doors. It's like, well, that's a dumb thing. You know, perhaps the hear noise just means your senses are larger. Perhaps it means that you can hear into a cavern and hope that you get an idea. You know, what? it's more than that. It's more than what you can sort of just read in a single line of a, of a book. How else can you reinterpret it without bending the rules to the point that they break? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, and it's the struggle we all have, because, uh, you know, the primer that Dan, you know, always references for how to play old school is not to be so dependent on dice rolling, and really just, well, if the player comes up with something that seems reasonable, uh, use it, and, um, you know, but then even in first edition, especially just as it moves into the, the book that will be not named, um, you get to the ability checks and you're really just basically creating skills but not calling that because now everything becomes a die roll. So I want to jump over here. Okay, make a strength ability check versus I think in the older way it was just, yeah, you're a fighter. That seems pretty good. I'll give you a 10. And, and you've got... And you got 15 strength, which means that you can bench, you can do a you know a deadlift weight of about 300 pounds. Yeah, you can jump over a, a five foot crevice without having to worry about it. Right. You know, and that's the sort of. But you've got to have a DM that 
sort of thinks about it in that way. You know, that's why I sort of keep using the phrase like-minded people because if you get like-minded people and they all like to use stat checks, well, that's fine. And if you get like-minded people and they all like to be a little bit more airy-fairy and creative, then that's just as good as well. Well, the like-minded people I've seen, at least the ones that Dan and I play as, if we can do it automatically, we're totally fine with that. If we can't do it automatically, then I'd like a rule that's the most advantageous to my player. I, I think there should also, so if you're jumping the five-foot crevice, and we know you definitely can make it, I think on a rule of a one, you still fall and die right. in the crevice. Because that's fun, yeah. right? For some. Yeah. I mean, you know, there should be a chance yeah. that... I think nothing's 100%. That's well, it. That's every, no, 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 every, the best chance you have of doing anything, I think, should be 95%, which would be what would be right? A one is a failure. Right, one would be a failure. I use that, I use that in work. I always use that in work terms as well. When somebody says, so how are we going with this as well? There's always a 5% chance of failure. Because right. you know, I, I, I bring a lot of DNB into my life, which is sad, but it's just so but, and, and, but that's the tension, right? That, you know, it's the Yoda thing, tr you know, tr do, there's no try. Try or, you know, do or don't do. Uh, you know, because I'm in a field where we have a lot of projects and everything's 90% done, but yet the thing's not done. It's like, oh, we're almost 90% done. You know, five years later, we're 90% done. Either it's done or it's not done. And, and again, that's the tension when you have all these, there's certain rules or certain situations that are detailed, you know, exhaustively in the DMG. And then there's other ones like, meh, you got to figure it out. And I think that's where the tension comes. Some people have to have and they're the third edition people and no slam on them where they want every permutation some some rule for it uh and then there's people who go back to the original which we didn't have it we just make it up and as long as everyone's cool with it we keep doing it that way where you know if it's less than five feet you automatically make it if it's more than five feet you know you like you said check your strength or something like that and i think both are valid plays and i think that's what you do a good job with um you're not uh uh dictatorial in your statements you say this is what it is you insert some things that are not by the book but you've, you you again in a very gygaxian way you preface it with hey there's no wrong way of playing if people are having fun and they're enjoying it i'm i'm here to try to break this down for you not to uh either embarrass you or say this is the only way to do it so uh, i thought that was yeah. i thought that was well done um, well, then that's what you've got to be aware of, especially in a game like D&D where you've even got – I mean, I know of a, a group where they don't even roll dice. And I think that's oh, – the whole point of doing it is to roll dice. But, you know, where they just – where they talk it all through and say, well, how much of it's D&D really if you're just – but they do. They still call it D&D. They still got AD&D. They still have the classes and everything. But, you know, they sort of come to an agreement about how their stats are and how many hit points – they can do in terms of combat and you know and you can play like that if you've got everyone else involved in that and that's not something that i would partake but right. i get that that's how others would play now um because you know you mentioned the, the book that will not be named even though you named it uh <laughs> and, and it's what's interesting i don't know if you so how frequently do you update the books do you go back frequently or once how long did it take you to write all those and do you keep updating them yeah, well, pretty much, yes. I mean, like, for instance, I'm just looking at one. Um, I think the, the the most recent update is something on the Thief that I've done. I updated the Thief element recently. Um, it was just uh, I cleaned up some text. I've 
uh, made the as I'm becoming more familiar with the, the software package, you know, the uh, the the, the book Tableau tool, um, sort of making things look easier to read. Uh, but yeah, I'm. Generally, it's a matter of, well, yep, I'll read through it, and if I like the way how it sounds, then, yep, that's okay. Or I think, oh, I could rewrite that phrase a bit better, and then bang. And like I said, if I treat them like living documents rather than hard and fast book, then um, you can just keep modifying them and adding to it or changing that up, and you think, well, actually, you know, after reading a Dragon magazine, rereading a Dragon magazine, and then you look at why wow, they read that um, piece on Half Elves really well, and I like how they mentioned that, so I'm going to put that in there, and then bang, you just put that in, you know. So it's just a case of uh, updating as the thought is is there. But how long did it take to put them in there? I think I started the first one about a year and a half ago. Okay. And I just uploaded it, but it took me about probably. Um, uh, a couple of weeks, about three or four weeks to do the first one. And then it took a bit longer to do the DMs guide because I also wanted to get the language right. It, I didn't want to take over. Because when you're doing the player's handbook, it's very much this is how it works. And this is what they mean by this. This is how signings are. Include it, don't include it. This is what it happens. But when you're doing the DMs thing and it's like, well, how to create a world, I'm not going to tell you how to create a world, but I want to give you the ability to know how to create a world if that makes sense yeah so that's what i've tried to achieve with so that took longer to do and the different classes some of the, like the, the illusionist was a burst of inspiration i know you hate that but it was a burst of inspiration to do the illusionist because everyone just laughs at the illusionist it's like man what? is everyone, it really everyone. is it really that bad what <laughs> everyone laughs at the illusionist you didn't laugh at that illusionist that did the total party kill on you guys on Treasure yeah, Barlon. Yeah. As a bad guy, they're the, the best bad guys. That was because awesome. Realistic, yeah. Realistically, illusionists, I mean, the, the only way to defend yourself against an illusion is by saying, I don't believe it's there or I don't believe that. So you've got this class that knows that everything it looks at doesn't really exist. So eventually they're going to go nuts. Because they're always thinking, that doesn't exist. There's a minotaur charging us. No, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's not a minotaur. And then the minotaur hits. But it's, you know, it's like, that's the world that the illusionist lives in, where it's a matter of, that doesn't, if I don't like it, I'm going to just say it doesn't exist and hope that it's an illusion. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's really good that you give some examples of, you know, classic ones. I, again, part of it was I was surprised a lot of the examples were in the DMG versus in the player's handbook. And again, not as a criticism. That was kind of how do you take something that's so, uh, you know, you're trying to deconstruct it. You're trying not to just repeat what's in the player's handbook or the DMG, you know. So w what was the rationale to have some of the examples in the DMG part? You just assume anyone who's interested in first edition, they're going to read all the books anyway. Is that what's your rationale? Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. That is it. And and in the player's handbook, what I wanted to do with the player's handbook was say, right, you know those old goldenrod forms? How can someone fill out one of them? What do, yeah, and what do they need to do to fill out one of those? And so when you look at one of those forms, you think, well, it's got armor class, base armor class, armor class at the back, dexterity bonus, and just grappling over varying, pummeling. What the, what's that? 
there's nothing in the player's handbook about all of that, but there are these charts where so, so even to that point where you go, okay, this is what you can put in there so that if your DM's going to do it, it makes it easier for them. So that all you have to do is put plus six, plus eight, plus 10. You don't have to know what it is. You just have to know how to fill it out. So that way from a golden rod point of view, you can create a character and fill out nearly all of it, you know, yeah. and, and that's what you want to try and that that's realistically what a player's handbook should have been trying to aim at. They knew what the character sheet was going to look like. They should have been able to help, but that's, you know, it's Gygax and it's first edition at D&D and they either felt, no, nah, players will do what they want to do or they felt they didn't have time or they felt, I don't know, whatever they felt. Um, I, I wrote to um, TSR and the five questions, as I said to you earlier, no, I, I went on a previous game where it said five questions, yes or no answers. So I put in five questions about some stuff about some of the points that I was confused about. And I think I got about two pages of information back. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you still, what, what year was that? So that would have been about, that would have been 1980. Do you still have that? A copy of that? My mum my threw it all out. She threw out all my books. She threw out all my modules. She threw out, she needed the room for a sewing room. So she just, just dismantled my room and... <laughs> <laughs> through everything, everything. So I had to resource a handful of things. Wait, wait. Oh, okay. So what year was it thrown out? Uh, 93. I wasn't in the country at the time. Like I think I'd been out of the country by about two weeks wow. and my room was turned into the sewing room. But, but, but it's not just that it was turned into sewing. Because, look, I think that's fair. Right. The real issue is that it was just all the stuff was discarded. Right. Yeah, it's rubbish basically. Yeah, yeah that's rough. Yeah, well, even tell you. she had no, no, she just had no value for it. So I was like, oh, yeah, it's just all, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and this is not about David and his mother's relationship because we could go down that rabbit hole. You know, my, I like that. My, more interesting. Absolutely. Should we call her? Yeah, my wife, my wife has kept, you know, things where people's the son has written crayon, you know, just scratch something. Like, why do we have? Well, literally, yeah, is a kid. brush stroke. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why I have this house, so I can archive vast buckets of stuff. And yet, here is something clearly that was uh, part of his life. For no, wait, you were out of the country? Were you living at home at the time? I mean, I know you are out of the country. Well, like, I moved because uh, in the um, mid-90s, I moved over. over. We had a, I don't know if you, um, if you guys had it, but we had what was called the recession we had to have, which was in 1990. And when, uh, when that hit, unemployment rate went huge, oh, was wow. high, and money dropped out of the economy and it was all quite you know it was bad and so i was just taking contract work and i was a contractor and i was doing six months six weeks three weeks three months whatever i could take i was doing work yeah and then one day I doing this in any country and i was had access to a european passport or a british passport because i'm from adelaide so um and then that was it it was just a matter of okay well i can do this overseas i'm going to do it overseas and bang i just did that traveled overseas and did that for a while and that's as soon as i'd left that was it it was like well oh he's left the house that's it bang room done if he left it oh, it may have been considered an abandonment <laughs> under law right i think she but perhaps was within her legal right to, well, well i don't know law of australia yeah. but it is the common law right i mean i assume it's common law right back in yeah, the 16th so. century or even before all that. the all the yeah. colonies are, are going to be common law right. right so i think yeah absolutely 
that's what holds us all together is the but common if, law. If you'd like to make a claim on some of your family, uh, maybe Dan knows some folks who could do uh, well, international law or something like that you could get involved. Well, and I'm actually glad this topic has come up about discarded books because, you know, we like to joke around here, but this is actually a very serious issue. As, as David, as you may know, we have here a D&D book reunification project right. where we, we seek to reunify users, former owners, with their books. So were there any identifying marks on the books? Did you have your name in it? Did you use? Oh, yeah, I had my name. Yeah, I had my name. I had my name on there and I had, like, on the, in the DMs guide, I had uh, my own table, like uh, one of the blank pages at the front. I wrote down various pages that I used for common referencing for, th for that I used, and so my own referencing system as well. Now so it was. Uh, I'm sorry. Shocking. I, did you did you um, use the as, as as many of us did? Did you use the little punch the machine with the black the tape black would tape come out? Would... You know, it impress the white. Yeah. Did you use that? No, I, I wrote. No, I, I wrote in. I wrote in uh, solid blue kilometrico pyro pen. Okay. The um, uh, my name and uh, I don't think I had my telephone. I wrote my name uh, on all my books. And you went by David. So it was all the. Yeah. It was the old cover. Yeah, it was the old old covers as well. It was all the old cover of our books. You know, the the original first printings of the. Right. Probably even older than that one. So, like the original, original. So, of those are older so if 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 everyone, if all our listeners could please take a look at their, right. their old books, right. see if David Thompson will have some, uh, it'll right. have some references to exactly. important pages in there. Well, we need to move up in Australia because uh, <laughs> it's not going to be. I, I mean, if if there's an international book smuggling trading, I don't I don't know if it's gone international where these books from. That have been stolen from people have been traded internationally. Do you think that's a like a human tra book trafficking? Well, well, well and the problem is the problem is uh, my understanding is David's mother put him in a dumpster. Right. <laughs> she didn't sell them on eBay. Right. So, so I really can. this this could be a difficult. It could happen, but this yeah. this is going to be a little more challenging reunification project, don't you think? We'd have to trace uh, it. Maybe we should start with talking to his mother. Right. Well, being, finding out where she threw them out at. Yeah. Talk to the local waste management company. Maybe we could find the old supervisor or somebody from back from the mid nineties. Right. What is it, Adelaide? You could be our, our Australian chair of the oh. Dungeon Ma Dungeons and Dragons book reunification yeah. initiative. Or, may, or maybe uh, no. It has to be initial. Well, it could be even maybe we could be like the grog, just in even a higher title. Okay. The the Australian the, grog the talk. The Australian ambassador. The Australian ambassador is a grog talk. Yes, the grog talk <laughs> ambassador. I always wanted to be a viceroy. Could he be a viceroy? Of the, yeah. yeah, it should be more D and D ish, don't you yeah. think? Yeah, you'll be Viscount? the uh, <laughs> viscount. 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 We'll have various viscount. Or he'll be a lord. Right, that will be some of the things. You can decide uh, whatever book on um, Dungeon Master's Guide, the titles, uh, Sultan, perhaps, of Australia. I always like Thane. I always like the idea of a Thane. I want to be a Thane. Thane. I don't know what kind of uses the word Thane, but I always wanted to be a Thane. All right. <laughs> a prestigitator? Well, that's, yeah, that's a level type. Well, he'd have to be an illusionist since he's, he's the one who... He, no, but no, but our people should have levels. Right. So he's level one. Right, we're all well. Yeah, we're all level one. No, we're level. Come on, we're like the host. We're the co-host. Okay, we're gotta be like level three. Okay, I'll give you, you think? That. Well, depending on our, is that based on subscribers? Because if it's based on subscribers and viewers, in Sweden, we're level five. Well, level yeah, Sweden, we are moving up. 
They are. Uh, we're almost. We're almost building a settlement there. We're that level. We'll have followers. So. You said we hit the top ten in Sweden earlier this year. One time. So yes, I think you still doubt me, and I'm not. We're not going to complete. While while I show him this, um, so you've played in basically two continents, right? You played in England. Did you get a chance to play yes. when you were there? And yes, yes, I did. Obviously played in Australia. Um, what did you notice any differences between those uh, styles of play, just between the UK and Australia? They were more story driven. They really liked the idea of uh, getting into doing um, big story campaigning style, and the, the um, even just doing um, little hits of adventures. Were oh yeah, but you know how does that fit into the larger thing? So I don't know if that was just a group that I, that I'd um, caught up with, or if it was a, a trend across the way. But they were very much more into the more depth of the adventure and whereabouts it sits, and what about the local lord? And they would ask questions. They would ask questions. About, so what's the name of the local lord, and, and what's the history of this area? I'm a magic user. Do I know anything magical about? Do I have any knowledge about any creatures or people that lived in this area before, you know, and this land and so on and so forth? So they would really get more into the actual background side of it. Well, like I said, the, the group that I was with did anyway. And I thought that was quite fun because I would quite often do all of that and then my players would always just want to go and kill stuff and not actually ask any questions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's like the um, – and the, but the, you know, the DM's guide, it warns us of that. It says that, you know, you just want – the players just want to do things efficiently and cheaply and um, cloth it – what is it? Clod their way through the um, – <laughs> Yeah, the adventure. The dungeon crawl. Yeah. And, and that's – Whereas yeah. – yeah, so it was just like that's what they were after. You know, they were – it would seem that the group that I was with over there were um, more keen on the – on knowing a bit more of the history of the land and us and so on. I'm curious, and I know Dan's got a question. I'm curious if it's because you know I listen to a a podcast that they're from England and they have the same kind of uh, background. You know, they played up until the late '80s, and then they call it the Deep Freeze, the Grognard Files, and then they came back to it. I think D and D wasn't as big as like uh, RuneQuest and uh, Cthulhu and Traveler. And so those combat was very deadly. You, it was something you didn't want to do because you probably weren't going to survive. Uh, you weren't very good at it. So the stories were, you know, the games were more story driven, and maybe the cultural too. So that's fascinating that you uh, that you rec- not recognize but identified that difference. And yeah, so I don't know if it's if you know you always when you have a sample set of one, you never know if it's uh, indicative of the whole culture. But that was your experience. Yeah. Dan, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, David, I'd be interested to know if in going through the books and trying to organize the material and clarify the material, are there any inconsistencies that you've come upon that you struggled with? So one of the things that I struggled with when I started putting together a document was discovering some of these inconsistencies. And uh, if you did find some, what was your approach to it? Did you simply accept them as inconsistencies? Did you say, well, I'm going to try to reconcile them? Did you say, well, the DMG trumps... Some of it was reconcile, and, but you also had to look at it from the, the order that the books were produced. There was obviously a chance of them to write something and then go back and rewrite something. I mean, the way how um, they talk about certain... Uh, character classes in the player's handbook and then in the DM's guide, uh, it's it's almost 
uh, like those players' handbooks, the sales guide to be this class, but then in the DMs guide, it's like, yeah, but it comes, but it comes yeah. to do that, you know. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you can do this. You can do this. You can be this amazing guy. And it's like, yeah, but they, they can't do this. So they have to wait till their 12th level. And that's only going to happen up to 3 million experience points. And that's actually one of the points because I'm sure that I'm, try, I'm trying to find it as I'm scrolling through, but that there is one passage somewhere where the uh, experience points, it actually was called EP. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a whole lot called XP. Yeah. And so obviously at some point they thought, oh, experience points EP, but then, I don't know, whatever, the Electrum piece or something yeah. else came in the way and, and thought, no, nah, we've got to call it XP or something. So, uh, But I can't remember the exact location of where I saw the EP, but I, I did make mention of that in my deconstruction yeah. where it's like, well, look, somewhere it's called EP, yeah. but got later adjusted to XP. And you can tell that some of the bits and pieces were by space where, or time. He didn't have time to write something, so he just wrote that down and then expanded on it elsewhere. And you just go, well, that doesn't help anybody by putting it in a book that the players aren't allowed to actually read, you know. And so you sort of try and – that's what I was trying to do is bring it all in. But generally the, uh, the DMs guide would expand on a few of the, the broad statements on a player's handbook on something especially like scrolls or on something else or, you know, and then it will say, right, well, this is how it's actually going to work. And like I said, I think that the player's handbook is that sales guide, uh, the, the glossy brochure that says, here's your fighter class, boom, or here's your ranger. You can do all these things. You're a killing beast and you can do that. But then it doesn't tell you anything about tracking or it doesn't really explain certain things and why a first level is better than a second level or a fourth level when it's the same percentages. And so you've just sort of, you know, there's some of that where you have to um, draw upon um, other factors as well. So like uh, I've got a, I had some, uh, one, that was actually one of the things that I asked about was the, the, um, the tracking guide. And because um, I've, I remember the the questions I asked, like when I would say that I've asked you know, questions, it was like, you know, the halfling, why does it have a constitution of 19, plus one on the dexterity, did you mean and, and so the question I gave him was along the lines of, well, did you, this is how we're playing it, where they go to 19 decks and they have 19 con because if you're a young adult, you get plus one to your constitution and if you happen to have 18, then it goes to 19 and so on and blah. And expecting a yes or no and pretty much i got a a paragraph back saying confirming that that was that's a good idea let's do that who can i can i can i ask you about that because that that's a significant issue um so that was in your letter and i was about to bring that up because i remember somebody had posted on youtube that they'd asked about that and i was going to ask i I couldn't remember if it was you or not and obviously was so that was in your letter that you sent to TSR with your five questions. One of those questions, it dealt with the dexterity issue on halflings? Yeah, because it was like, well, we played it with 19 decks because we just thought it, well, we have 19 decks. It's plus one to dexterity. And then when I was reading through the player's handbook or doing something on the player, and I was like, oh, why does it say 18, 19? And it didn't even occur to me that there was a typo. It didn't even occur to me that they were just, oh, that was a mistake. You know, it didn't even, like, why would they make mistakes? You know, they don't make mistakes. These are the people that write the books. I'd be interested to know who 
authored the letter or did they sign the letter? Because, you know, that was, that was brought to Gygax's attention, apparently, long after the fact. And Gygax was surprised that he had not been aware of the typo, and he confirmed that it was a typo. Uh, and so I'd be interested, you know, it sounds like whoever responded to your letter perhaps didn't bring that up with Gary Gygax. Now, that's not surprising to me because, I mean, Sage's advice, if I recall correctly, you know, oftentimes I think the answers to Sage's advice, my understanding anyway, weren't necessarily vetted by Gary Gygax. I think he was famously upset with Gene Wells' answer where she said that a magic user could hold a weapon, a dagger, and still cast spells, still do well, she said, as long as, as long as you can still do the somatic requirements. Mm -hmm. And Gygax, I think, was, was unhappy with that, is my understanding, uh, because he felt it would be almost impossible to do the somatic requirements with only one hand. Um, and I guess you also have to get out the spell components to do all those things. So, yeah, I'd be interested, David, to who, is, if you remember, who signed off on the letter dealing no, with I, yeah, you don't know. it wasn't Gary Gygax that responded back you, directly. You, that would that, have been way too... Right, that you would have remembered, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I would have well and truly remembered. Oh, wow, he writes his, you know, he, he answers his own mail. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think by the time David's playing, because I know allegedly uh, that people would look up his phone number in Wisconsin and call, and he, you know, basically was home number. Right. And they would just he'd answer the questions See, and people would call. Yeah. And, and this is, and then later, you, you die to be able to do that, right? right? You wish you could do that? This is the opportunity people have now with Grogline. That's right. They're not taking advantage of it. Right. We're here waiting, you can simply call in. Right. John calls, that's right. Uh, <laughs> David has chimed in. Other people, when we have, when we're beyond this and we have thousands of fans clamoring to talk to us, we'll be like, I'm sorry, who is going to be our... our you know, we have to decide who's going to misinterpret what we want done. It'll probably be Nico. David. Oh, you think? I think Dave. No, David and I are on the same page. Like I said, I read his missive, uh, his books, and he's tried to fix. Uh, and I use that open close quotes, uh, like hit points. He makes a very persuasive case why a fighter should never get one hit point, even though they roll it. Um, you know, using. Uh, Zero level characters and NPCs. Can I ask some questions? I have some yeah. questions here. Sure. You these are totally <laughs> irrelevant, but these are things that I picked up on when I started going back to the rules. Dave, do you have an opinion on whether on the issue of whether a half orc can go to level eight as a thief? And and the reason I raise this is that it says half orc thieves with a dexterity of less than seventeen are limited to six level. Those with dexterity of 17 are limited to 7th level, but you can go up to 8. So you Correct. Say, oh. So a half-orc with an 18 dexterity can go up to level 8. Ah, well, there is a problem. The maximum... They've only got a maximum of 17 dexterity. Exactly. That is exactly right. So what's your opinion? So, you know, I've posted this on, uh, I think, on Dragonstar. I can't remember where, this issue. Uh, maybe it's on a Facebook site. Um, what is your opinion on that? Do you think that is a typo, or do you think that Gygax was was limiting that to moving up to eighteen via magical means? Yeah, I'm just via magical means. I've always thought of it as terms of that because you can always increase your stats through wish, through alter reality, through other ways and means down the line. You know, when you've got powerful things, and I think there's even a couple of other um, uh, a magical. There might be a, like a magic item or something that gives you plus one to dexterity. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, yeah. So, and, I, and that's that's where I think it comes from. I think it comes in the fact that if you're a base half orc thief, you're stuck at seven unless you can work to get your um, dexterity up to eighteen. Do you, so do you think I don't even need to be here. He ex answered exactly I would. So what? if I'm never available, you can just Skype David. It could be the David and Dan show. That international. Yeah. D&D. &D. So you're just going to be the key gripper. D&D. &D. I'll be the you're key just grip. D&D. &D. You're not even a D. I'm not. I'm a J. I don't even have a D. Oh, it could be DJ, though. Well, DJ D. <laughs> Yeah, but do you think it was a typo, and are you simply reconciling it now, or do you think that Gygax actually intended what he wrote there? No, I think he intended that. I think he intentionally made that happen because that is that is not a, an accident that it says uh, that all the um, the main character classes are limited from the seventh, you no know, less than seventeen at seventeen, and then at, a, at stat eighteen. Whether it's uh, the gnome illusionist at seventh level or something or whatever it was, and the um, magic user for the half for the elf at eleventh level, and especially the poor half elf where everything's going to be fifth, sixth or seventh level, you know, you're rarely going to have anything higher than that for the half elf. Uh, that's intentional. And so the half orc element to it, that is also intentional because it actually gets the minus one. Like it's, they, they want the half orc thief <coughs> to be the back alley basher. <coughs> Excuse me. That is really what I think that they perceive the half orc thief to be. It's not a second story man, or a um, right. you know a master master burglar, they are. I'm going to hide in the back. I'm going to be a fighter thief and have be a tenth level fighter and a seventh or sixth level thief, and I'm just going to hit people. Oh yeah, I'm going to push you down and take your stuff. Right, I'm a thug. Like <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's that's what I really think that they re that not so much a drawback, but I think that that's one of those things where um, they really put the half orc in that spot. I mean, I think it's interesting that the half-orc is in there considering how a half-orc is created and clearly it's a matter of well we're all adults playing this game they don't think that you know 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds are playing the game and so, so how's a half-orc made oh wow so what's the word for cund and then you look that up and you go ooh, ooh okay because <laughs> orcs are particularly for cund it's just like what well you know I, I guess in prose opposites attract that's right. That's right. Okay. Could be. Well, and I don't think we even thought about it that way. At nine or two, we're just like, well, okay, they're just half and half kind does of thing. It, does it part. bother you that a first level thief's hear noise ability is ten percent? Yet, well, that's innately, racial ability. Innately, it's higher for many races. Well, it works out to be the same. So, if you've got a first level half, if you've got a first level elven thief with its bonus. It works out to be the exact same as if they're a normal first-level thief. So if, and this is where the whole hear noise sort of thing comes in in my mind. I, I, I see it as like, okay, fair enough, hear noise. That's what it is. But when you think that it's like, well, what a thief does, that it's the heightened senses. So I've tried to expand on that and say, well, look, hear noise doesn't, whilst it's called hear noise, but does it just mean that, only the hearing has been increased. Can the sense of smell be increased? Can the sense of, you know, because as a thief is improving their body and their, um, you know, their, their, their mastery over the environment for themselves, you know, to make, to manipulate the world, 
they learn these other skills where it's like, okay, they sniff something. Yep, I, I know that perfume, it's this. To what they do. So if a normal fighter says, I listen to the hear noise and they've got to have a better chance or hear the same thing as a thief who's trained at hearing the noise. So what the quality of what the, no- the thief hears is going to be different to what a normal person would. So what a normal fighter would hear is like, okay, you might hear a sound of something grumbling, whereas a thief would hear, you actually hear the snoring of, a, of something. You know, that you have that quality because, and, but that's just pure role-playing and, and entirely up to the judge's uh, discretion as well. But I, I just sort of, I suppose I draw on the, um, how they talk about um, uh, what's the, the thinking ability that um, read languages where they've got, where they just read a language and then they can interpret as much as the percentage of the language. And it's like, well, that's an interesting, if you put that in there and you, you apply that logic, and I also applied the logic of how they did climbing walls where the difficulty of the climbing walls adjusts the percentage of fail rather than just a modifier. You don't get a minus 20%. What it does is it doubles your chances of failure. So if you've got a 90%, that 10% becomes 20% and so on, you know. So I sort of not played with it, but I, I used rules that they've already got and I've tried to say, well, imagine this. Why should, you know, anyone can call themselves an assassin. But really, an assassin does it best, and they've got the skill, so they should be better at it. I think that, and I had not re- realized that it is absolutely correct that the percentages for the race of the listener on page sixty to DMG, the increase above ten percent does correspond right. with the. In- I didn't know. Did you know? I didn't no, know I didn't. Um, I, I didn't pay attention because hear noise. We never did that. What always bothered. Well, what bothered me was the fact that it would be so. These first and second level thief, your hear noise percentage would be exactly the same, listening at a door, as a as, as someone who wasn't a thief. Right. Um, but I I like David's way of playing it, which is to say, well, number one, hear noise extends beyond just listening at a portal. Now. You can make the argument it only applies to portals. The descriptions prefer to portals, but I do like that. You know, it does. It is called hear noise, right? Not, it's not hear noise behind door. doors, right? Or listen at door. And I also do like the way David plays it. That well, that one says listening at doors versus right. hear noise. Yeah, right. And I think that is something that DMs and referees have to be very careful for, especially as you've been exposed to later editions. I think one of the things that are part of first edition, this is the idea of class, that is, and that their skills are parochial, they're, they're, they are part of that. And later editions kind of let you mix and mash, and other games let you mix and mash. And so you get this thing of, well, everyone's going to listen, which makes sense, logically, but to David's point, and we have to keep reminding ourselves that really the thief should get an enhanced quality of information. The assassin should be able to be more creative with it. Um, you can call yourself whatever you want, but it's not going to be as art, you know, artistic. Uh, you know, he had um, thieves like he talked about the saint in his uh, as examples versus you know uh, Bilbo or one of these other things. You can fit them all in there, um, but uh, you know, Grave, uh, you know, Conan, who is kind of a thief fighter in in a lot of things, he's not at least not the non Arnold Schwarzenegger version. Um, if he's just a fighter who has thief-like things, it shouldn't be as good or even in the same realm as 
Uh, he can still sneak around, but he's not going to, you know, he can climb, get into places, but he's going to use rope. He's not going to climb up the wall like some kind of uh, Batman or a Spider-Man. So, um, no, David and I are on the same page on a lot of things. He, he, he wants to improve the fighters because he thinks they get a short end of the stick. So he says specialization. Certainly. You know, so that's something I put in my game because why would you be a fighter when a ranger is a little more XP if they, and paladins a little more XP and they have tons more abilities and fighters are useless. So, and, and I like your idea and, and that's what I was going to do. But unfortunately, the game I inherited, the players already promised things. So I had to adjudicate that. But future, only fighters get specialization. Hit points, he does a nice job kind of arguing why fighters shouldn't have one hit point. Um, and he even uh, addresses some of the frustration that people have with magic users you got one spell he he gives them a little bit broader spell selection not that's it's kind of a minor well thing. that's actually in the, but that's in the book though where it says that you know you start off with your read magic and then three of those or you can do read magic and three of those plus one extra of this and this and that was one of the questions that i did put forward and they and the response that came back on that one was that well they always ran it with read magic and detect magic and then one of each. And it and makes perfect sense. If the and if it was and if it was a bad and if it was a particularly nasty or a, a, depending on how they were feeling in terms of the type of adventures they're running, that would also include two to five scrolls. And so that's why I mentioned that as well because that's not written in any of the books. And that you know do you get a couple of scrolls? But that was definitely that was what was written back to me when I wrote in and said, "Well, look, is this is this it? Is this what a you've got it down here? Is two options for the magic user as this and this or this? Couldn't you have just put it? We play it. Well, I play it like this, and the response was, "Well, yeah, that's how we do it with the read magic to take magic in one of each, and the um, and we also sometimes include extra scrolls." And yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And I think it's I think it's that's what makes it. I think you give people permission. You know, when we st- when we played, um, if it was optional, we tried to avoid it as, as the dungeon master because it was always this tension of players always pushing the envelope. And, yeah. you know, we, the, the line is drawn here. This is as far as, you, you know, you shall not pass kind of uh, dis- uh, dissertation. And, you know, your whole, I, you know, as a 13 to 19-year-old, it's a different... Uh, style of play than I have now, which is, oh, there's an option. Oh, it's discretion, which is, you know, it's in the first page. You, 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 sh- you have to decide the type of thing. We just generally said, nope, you get four spells. That's what you get. Oh, comma. Hey, you can, you can provide this, particularly if it's a nasty campaign or you can provide more things and you're not breaking it. And I think that's where you do a really good job in the book, in your eBooks, kind of giving permission to add the conditional and not feel like you're breaking the game. So, um, yeah. you know, those are three things I saw that fix, not even fix, deal with the reality of the game, which is it's deadly enough. Magic users are bored because they have one spell. Hit points are super deadly. You also mentioned the, uh, no matter what the hit is, you can go to zero. Um, and then you get beat down from there if you keep getting hit. So that makes people survive a little bit more. Um, so there's, you know, you, you add these things in here, and I think you do it in a way that um, if, if people played that way and then someone came, well, that's not the rule, they could go, 
Well, it's part it's part of the rule, and it's certainly a valid way to play. So I think that was really good. Um, I'm just curious if is it enough? You know, I think a combination of YouTube and your book and the books could get someone through it, um, as long as they don't watch later editions because it's so radically <laughs> different. It's so radically different. It's it's. Well, and and quite often, what I what I used to get frustrated with when I watched a couple of the um, the YouTube channels. There'd be something, and, uh, and they'd go up to a point, and then they'd completely miss the, the the target. And then the person would say, "Yeah, and we never use that anyway." And it's like, "Well, you're not helping anyone." <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and I we I know I have to be careful with that too, and and um, just because I think it's it's like you said, the number one thing is what's your players expect? Because you know, I think we have a, uh, and the, I think the other challenge with first edition is you have so many people who've played it for decades or had played it. And then they have their version of playing it. So if I was to run a game for you know Dan and you, you've played for 35 years. You know how you played it. And if I interpret the rule and we haven't come to consensus on, well, this is the permutation we're playing together, not how we played individually, we'll be fine. But if not, then it's like, well, wait a minute. The DMG says this. And all of a sudden, you're into rules lawyering uh, event. We're all kids and uh, young adults, and someone would figure out, oh, this is how we do surprise. We just did it that way. We just assumed he did the research, and we should have realized that that's a lot of work. They would just figure it out. Um, so is, is in, you know, in your part of Australia, is D&D the predominant game or uh, role-playing game, or did other games come and go? Because uh, I know in England, uh, for instance, in some parts of Asia, D and D may not be the most uh, popular game here. It was pretty dominant everywhere I went. We would try other games, Paranoia, uh, Top Secret, Star Frontiers, but it was never a. Uh, it was D and D, and then their other stuff was kind of things you did when you wanted to try something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, that's pretty much how it was. The D and D was the, the the big daddy, the big daddy of them all. And then the TSR farm that just sort of produced, you know, the Star Frontiers and Gamma World. Uh, but they were all quite small. We, I don't even think we ever got Boot Hill in the country at all. I've, you know, I mean, I've, uh, uh, I don't even think I've ever seen a copy of that here. Um, uh, but things like um, RuneQuest um, and Merps, you know, the Middle-Earth role-playing game or um, role master they were quite popular because what ended up happening was that people would say i want critical hits yeah i want to do a critical hit i want to be able to have this extra oh wow you've got you know role master where you have so many tables and charts and you're just looking at going, okay but then you know and you were hoping that to get that critical hit that would say you hit your opponent and their entire skeletal system turns to jelly you know, that's the sort of thing you want. You know, they're the sort of effects that you wanted to hit on others, but not have hit on upon you. But you know, as Gygax says, you know, as soon as you do something for one, you're doing it for all. And you know, so that that's the sort of the the role master was big, and Middle Earth role playing game was obviously big for a while, which was the same thing. And Fantasy Heroes um, and the Champions system that was um, that was. Uh, quite popular but um yeah but uh well and truly dnd is the gateway drug of choice yeah I, i'm surprised boot hill because obviously you know australia is an interesting i, I mean I, I researched it you know 35 years ago when i was a student but 
you know, the parts of the country, they're all, because of the size of it, you, know, you have parts of it that are very Western, what we would call Western. So you could do an Australian yeah. version of, of Boot Hill, which I think would go over. Oh, yeah, well. bush rangers and all that sort of thing. Absolutely. You could. Well, I think they've now got one out, the miniatures game, which is um, like a Wild West miniatures game. And they've got an Australian um, supplement where you do bush rangers as part of that. So you can have Ned Kelly up against um, – no, Jesse James. <laughs> ah, see, I mean, that to me would be, uh, that'd be the hot ticket. Um, because again, part of it is, I think, uh, and, and now we're getting into the 21st century, we didn't think about having, quote unquote, culturally appropriate games. You know, we took medieval Europe uh, as we kind of Excalibur meets uh, Lord of the Rings uh, and said, oh, that's fine. That's good for everyone. But it's, it's. Fire and ice slash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then whether it was Iron Maiden or whatever, we, we, we kind of accepted that. And that was part of our history, Western history tradition. Um, it's fascinating to see how people take this idea of fantasy and, and apply that. You know, and even in our, in our game, um, some of the better games, uh, the Pharaoh series, uh, where they had the Egyptian theme of it and prehistoric. So there's definitely a lot of value. So, um, Dan, do you have a question that you have uh, remaining at this point? Uh, yeah, just so I think the final question I would have, David, uh, you mentioned that most of the time you DM as opposed to play. Uh, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on you know, what attributes uh, are there to being a good DM. So yeah. when you're running a game, what do you think, you know, and, and or if you're playing in a game, because a lot of times, you know, the way you learn how a good DM is, is not by DMing, but right. by playing, right. watching the DM. If you could give some tips to uh, a, an aspiring dungeon master and how to play. So in the in-game, I know, you know, before the game, you want to do all the prep and, 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 and work it up and be prepared. But in terms of in-game play, what would be your advice? Never let them see you sweat. So the, um, the, one of the coolest things you can do as a DM is obviously just be, you know, it's your game, your, it's your game as much as it is the players. I know a lot of people seem to think that the DM doesn't get involved in the game or, or anything else, but I've always seen it as the point of view of it's my story. It just happens that everyone else is a player doing their part and they're actually involved in my story that I've created. And that's the reason that they're all doing things. And then, of course, the players are, doing what they want to do, but ultimately from a DM's point of view, we want to try and still maintain that sort of distance of not getting too involved, you know, and then getting too emotionally attached, but still want to be involved and then play. So that never let them see a sweat is really important. You want to have that poker face as often as possible because quite often what my players found is that <laughs> while they're discussing something, I'd be thinking, that's a great idea. I should do that. And so eventually they got the wary of that. And then they, when they were doing their pre-plan, they'd get into a huddle and then they'd, and then they'd be working something out for themselves and then they would come back. And uh, that's, that's good in my mind where you've actually got five guys who just get right. And they're having a little secret meeting as to what their action they're going to take before they enter into this room. Because if they say, Oh, if they have the open conversation, then obviously as a DM, you are going to be influenced by it a little bit, and you'll just go, "Yeah, yeah, I like that. I might, I might, might steal that idea. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah." You know, and then boom, you guessed, or this is it, or I'll do it in the next room. And so, you know, they learnt, um, they learnt to keep their own little musings 
private. But the players are going to want to try and um, do this thing and you're going to have to look at it and go, what on earth are you thinking? The, the bridge is right there. Why don't you cross it? You know, <laughs> you heard me say bridge four times. But, you know, and players do what players do. So uh, my guys were the ones, I don't know if uh, it's sort of come out somewhere anyway. I heard someone else talk about it. Um, my players are the ones who um, had the the gazebo incident. I don't know. Have you guys heard of that? No. Do you, know, you know what a gazebo is, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so this is a bunch of teenagers, right? We're all playing in the back and whatever else. And so they're – one of the guys wasn't there, and so we had a, a mini one-off mission uh, to, to make use of everybody. And so they all they had to do was to break into this house, steal some things. It was a smash and grab, and then out they go and whatever else. It would have been an evening's worth of play, four or five hours, all done and dusted. Everyone would have had fun. And then we can continue on the adventure next week when everyone was together. And so – they scope the place out. Yep. They all come in. Yep. They decide to come in from the back. Okay. So I'm describing how the, you know, the, the fence and they climb up. No, they get over to the fence and they're in the tree line. And I talk about between them, the trees and, and the, the back of the house is a gazebo. And so then they get into their huddle and then they say, okay, I knock my arrow. I will this. And we attack the gazebo. <laughs> and I just, I'm sorry. Well, and before you know what players are like, the moment they start, they start rolling dice. Do I hit? You know, 18. Yeah, hit. Yeah, and I do. You know, they're already proceeding ahead as if it's you know, like I'm just like, you, you. What are you doing? And so they've just gone bang, bang, bang. You know, like they've scored these hits on the gazebo, and then they've just gone. Did we kill it or how much damage? I said, no, it's a gazebo. Yeah. Oh no, this thing's tough. Let's get away. You know, and then they jump back over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> they thought, wait, so they were confused. They didn't understand what a gazebo. They, right. think gazebo they thought it was a monster. Was the, yeah. The yeah, they thought it was a monster. Yeah, yeah. they just yeah, they just had this idea that it was a gazebo. That the gazebo was a monster of some description. I've heard and that. in my mind, the, in my mind, the way I played it is just that it was a matter of what they've done is they've seen the shadow of something. They didn't know what it was. They had a couple of shots at it. They heard it ping and whatever else, and then they've done a runner. Now, in my mind, it played out completely different to the chaotic nature of it all because, like I said, it's my story, and that's how I imagine. So I'm chuckling. It didn't happen occur to me until after. I don't know what a gazebo is. <laughs> I, I have an image of one of those kitten videos where, yeah. you know, there's just something like this. Say something stationary right. is sitting there. And they just saw it. And the little kitten walks up to it and... But, pokes at it and pops up in the air. And, I thought there was a Dragon magazine where they talked about demonic lawn accoutrements. I thought maybe that's what they read. You know, there was this, you know, type six lawn furniture or something like that. Maybe they mis misconstrued that. That's now, the only thing I'd say. So, so when they were attacking the gazebo, it didn't dawn on you at that time that they didn't understand the gazebo. So you're just like, why are they attacking this gazebo? And, and yeah. So, so yeah. you're like pulling no, no, out then, the saving throw for wood or something. <laughs> right. It's like crushing blow. Because, uh, yeah, you know, structural points-wise, they're only doing one point of damage to it. And the gazebo would have like about eight or nine points. And it's like, what? No. What are you doing? No. no you haven't done any damage to it. <laughs> yeah. So. And they ran away. Did they come back? Wait, was that the end of the evening, or did they come back? No, no. They, they, then they then they came in on another. Then they came in on the front. And once I realised that they just didn't know what a gazebo was, and they escaped out. And then 
I told them afterwards, I said, look, this is what it, you know, you know cause we actually have a, um, there was actually, you know, in our, in our city, in, in Adelaide, there's a thing called, it's like, it's actually a, like, it's, it's not like it's an unknown word. It's an actual place. Like it's right. a thing. So it's just that they didn't equate it to, um, to, you know, outdoor furniture. They just, but anyway, so they entered uh, through another sideway and killed everybody inside and completed the mission and whatever else from there. Just so funny. Yeah, it's fun for all, yeah. yeah. Slaughtered yeah. Place, was like, oh. stole their jewels, like, killed, the, killed the kids. Yeah, the, it was a lot of So but then they went out the back to put the gazebo and it was, oh, oh, you mean it's a structure? Anyway. <laughs> Stupid gazebo, they burned it. That's right. Then, Stupid gazebo. Then they had to make Just, sure it was dead. It, what would have happened to me coming back to the game 29 years later would have been the opposite. They would have, the DM would have said, okay, well, there's a golem. I'm like, okay, well, I go inside it and, yeah. and relax. Right. No, that's a monster. That's right. That's a monster. <laughs> I would have thought the monster was a piece of furniture. Yeah. No, that's a good one because, you know, that it's, I, I think a lot of people um, looked at these books and, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a, a reader as much as I, I guess I'm a little bit more now, but still never was a consumer of books. But this tome, these books were the ones I read oh. constantly. Yeah, I wasn't. Well, but no, but you did your re- Australia. Well, that was Australia. that was yeah, well, that was like my for Britannica. some reason I had an obsession. Yeah, so I'll, I'll have to show up there uh, at some point. My my, my father in law lives in he lives six months in New Zealand, which again is not that close. It, that's a, that's it, across the ditch. We yeah. call that the ditch. The, the the Tasman Sea is called the ditch. Yeah. Yeah. So, you call it the pond of the Atlantic Ocean. We right. call it the ditch. The ditch. So, yeah. There are. Brothers across the ditch. That'd be a good name in a, a campaign role. What a body of water <laughs> called ditch. the ditch. Yeah, don't you think? I think that we would be. That. Well, that's what we need. We need to flavor up our instead of our generic uh, right. US. Dark sea. Yeah, just the ditch, the big ditch. The ditch. Or the ditch. That's good. But uh, yeah, I don't know why I did research. I think it was fourth. We had to pick countries, and that was one that was interesting to me because uh, that was going to be my escape plan in fifth grade, if, if America, because I grew up in New York. <laughs> And, and then Escape from New York came out. Oh, I remember that. So <laughs> I really thought it was Thunderdome meets, uh, you know, Australia Mad- was, that was Australia well, it was a big, that's right, it was a big place and you could kind of set up. But hot. I found Orlando. So it's hot here. Too. Yeah, it's really hot here. But um, oh, well, Adelaide, Adelaide has a dry heat. You're looking at, um, you know, well over the, the 100 Fahrenheit. I don't know if you guys work in centigrade, but you're looking at, you know, 40 plus degrees centigrade during summer. In Adelaide, it's flat, it's dry. There are no trees, no water. It's just that dry heat that absolutely just saps you. As you, if you're outside, you just lose all moisture. And, <laughs> and a lot of giant scorpions. Is that right? Oh, just spiders. Just lots of spiders. Oh, okay. So um, you and snakes. It's, it, there's this great picture of, uh, of a gum tree with a koala in it, and it says there are 15 things in this tree in this picture that will kill you. You know, <laughs> you, have to, you have to find it. Yeah. This, so would this, would this be like you going well, he doesn't on a see walk it over in there. Australia? He, he wouldn't there, see it. Oh, the, just a giant spider? Yeah, but on the website they'll see. Yeah, the, the giant spider from uh, the the monster manual. So, so I, yeah, the huntsman's yeah. So you said you're not playing. Is there is that is that a personal reason why you're not playing? I mean, uh, it sounds like it's you mostly had, time. It's just time. Yeah, it's time. I mean, obviously, I don't have a. There's no crew, you know. Like uh, the crew that I have, we're all old people, and they're scattered across the three different countries, and whatever else. So um, there's that plus time more than anything, um, and 
you know, I'm happy for uh, the kids to to play their D and D. No, they've got with their cousins and um, sure. with second cousins. They're all into it, and, we're, and so it's like you know, pass pass it down almost. You know, and so they come back and ask me questions all the time, and they come back and ask, "Oh, how's this work?" And even the the, the mini adventure I did for them, so to get their feet wet and to when the in, um, they wanted to have a game, and so I was like, "Okay, yeah, I'll run the game for you, not a problem." And then bang, I just created a game on the spot and went straight into it. And then a few months later, they're like, so are we ever going to finish that game? I said, if you want, I can you know, put it all together. You know, because uh, you just remember, I remember almost every single adventure that I've run. Yeah. And I've just got, because one of the things I, I call it the Tales of the Red Dragon Inn, whereas, like, you know, you just start in the tavern, the, the notice goes up, I want four adventurers to be able to bodyguard this. I want three people to, you know, you sort of have a almost like a, um, a minuet um, cube. I don't know if you've seen this thing that Mozart created where you've got you know, five different um, sliders so that he can start his minuet process. It's the same sort of thing. You're like, okay, how are we going to yeah. start it? Yep, how are we going to keep going? What's the MacGuffin? What's the thing? Yeah. And just go, right, boom, there you go. We're doing this. And you can sort of always put together you know, a quick side mission or, a, you know, an evening's worth of play for go and find this person, go and get that thing. And they're used to that. Now, when you look at all the games, the video games, all of them have those sorts of, you know, little side mission where I've got to go and find the this. Right. You know, uh, you've got your main mission and then you've, I've got to go find this, you know, and bang and so on. So... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm, I suppose I'm there as a living resource whilst I'm still living and things are, uh, that are, I'm trying to not put everything I know up on, on board just to sort of prove that I'm, you know, I know stuff, but it's one of those cleansing things for me. The, the game of D and D was, uh, given to, was passed into me or brought into my life at a time when everything else was chaotic mm. and, you know, you're, you're in control. It's your world. And so I would spend hours, you know, I'd spend more time making maps than I would doing my own homework or whatever, you know, as we did and creating worlds and universes and so on. And and when the Greyhawk supplements came out, man, I was all over that. That was, that was gold. That was just fodder for everything. Cause all of a sudden you just had the I mean, you showed them the I think last week or the week before they yeah. showed the the, the pluffer smedge of the elders notes on, you know, <laughs> and exactly. it's like man, <laughs> this is fantastic, and it's great to I know that from a Gary Gygax point of view, I think I read something somewhere that he didn't quite he that was his adventure and his world. He didn't think that people would want to play in his world that they'd make their own worlds, but right. not, you know, and you know you, again if you look at that 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 is how to build a world you know if you wanted a, a, a blueprint uh, how do i create a universe that is where you would start and then of course ed greenwood with the you know forgotten realms yeah was the, the that was breakthrough as well well if i recall it was bob Ledsaw of, of judges guild who saw that first before psr and guy x did the supplements yeah yeah and 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 that People with players would want adventures and modules that were written uh, for them and campaign roles like uh, the City State and the Borderlands. So, yeah, I think TSR was a little late to, to realize that. 
they were successful I think they by themselves. A, I'm sorry, go ahead, David. Yeah, I, I think that, no, I was going to say the, the exact same thing. I think that they had a few internal issues as well. There was like, you know, they got to the point where they were big enough that suddenly they were big and bold enough that they felt that, you know, like the TSR had produced, you know, like the Marvel superheroes game, the yellow box and the blue box. Mm-hmm. And they'd started to go down these other pathways as well, thinking, yep, we're going to be here forever. And, then, you know, without real leadership and without real strong guidance and they've made a, made a few business uh, mistakes here and there and the next thing you know, they were, you know, failing everywhere. Yeah. And then they were like, well, quick, we just got to push stuff out, got to push stuff out and keep people buying stuff. And we just, like, well, we don't need that. You know, and you just sort of end up still going back to the same three core books, maybe the Monster Manual 2, you know, and just, <laughs> and just you know, not worrying about the Dungeoneer's Guide Handbook 2 or, and you know, even the Fiend Folio, which we got obviously in Australia because it's, you know, the out of America, you know, it's the un-American uh, module, you know, it's the un-American book. Right. So we got that. I had the copy of that and that was spectacular and you know it was so we used that my and um uh but it was more of a case of you know tsr just self-destructing yeah i think i think for me it was more of they you know they weren't businessmen they were kids kids and then eventually young adults um and they just assumed they would you all would do what they did which was Here's some guidance. Go figure it out. And then when it became a business, they just didn't really think that way. It's almost like they sold the razors not thinking, well, we should sell razor blades because that's how we make money off this and that people would want to buy our razor blades. And, um, you know, that was – you could tell that up until Magic the Gathering came out. You know, it was an ingenious, mm-hmm. insidious way of, you know, collecting cards and, and uh, you know, it wasn't a role-playing game. But that's why it made so much money and eventually uh, – there, there is a. It's that. There's only a handful of people, and I don't consider myself in there, who can take an idea and just run with it completely. They need a lot of guidance, and 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 if it's a time constraint issue, they don't have this idea of pondering uh, hours and hours to create this. So it is interesting, and and again that history. And so um, I think we need to move to our suggestion. Do we have any more questions at this point? Yeah, I, I, because it's getting close to midnight for poor David, so I want to give him a chance That's to get right. some sleep. Um, so I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to well, throw one more thing at you guys as well, uh, just because you put it in as a joke, and I thought, no, nah, I'm going to run with it. Okay, um, good. Mending and push. Oh yes, mending and push. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, you know I'm a big fan of them, so I apologize. So go ahead, give give your what's your, what's your take on them. Right. So push, as we said, as I said to you before, you've got the ability of doing the modifier per level, yeah. you know, on something, so on. Yeah. But if you do, you have a copy of the the monster manual at hand in front of you. We do. Yep. So if you want to flick it over to the H section. Okay. Is it the H? Yeah, the H, the letter H. H. Yep. 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 Homunculus. Oh, homunculus. Have a look yes. at the homunculus. Because it says there, the magic user must then cast mending mirror image and a wizard eye to create a homunculus. Oh, so wow, <laughs> very good. The magic user must then cast a mending spell, a mirror image, and a wizard eye 
Yes, upon a fluid, upon the fluid. Yep. Not any fluid. Bond, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's a, a bunch of fluid. Yeah, because it's an alchemist that uses a, um, what is it, a, a pint of the magic user's own blood and then a number of other um, things from an alchemist. And then that's it. You've got to cast those spells on it. And then you, you too can have an homunculus. So you can have as many homunculi as you can possibly supply blood for and gold pieces to pay for. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. I don't even think we've ever created one, nor have players yeah. uh, ever asked to do that. So, so this could be very useful. They're, so they're a foot and a half. Right. And uh, they can be 48 inches away. They're 48 inches away from the magic user, and they can then see and hear and do everything else all through it, just like the magic user can. Which, of course, doesn't you know, so they can, mean inches. Right. Right. So it in could dungeon be. set, yeah. well, outside. Outside could be yards. That's yeah, right. outside. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Eight yards. Forty-eight. Well, four hundred eighty yards. You multiply it by ten. Yeah. Four hundred eighty yards. Right. So it's almost a quarter of a mile. And so it's four hundred eighty feet in the dungeon. So four hundred eighty yep. feet in the in dungeon. dungeon. Right. Four eighty. Four eight. Why not five zero? Uh, because it's four eight. It's the whole twelve-inch ruler. You know, we're oh. we're still in the English method. <laughs> Our English overlords are still. <laughs> ruling us, even though we've declared independence a long time ago. What level so. do you need to be so? Well, have a seventh level. You need because the wizard eye is a fifth level spell or fourth level spell. So you got to be about it. You got to be seventh spell. level. You have to cast yeah. Right. yeah, you need wizard eye. And it's just funny. Mirror image. You know, there you make a really good point because I don't think I ever read that. To me, that was a monster. But you, this is where back to your original point when your son was saying, "I need three books to make the." You know, it's not, it should be a line item in Magic User. At seventh level, you could make a homunculus. It's not even there. You, <laughs> your DM would have to expose this to you, which is just a different style of play. So it requires one pint of the Magic User's blood. Right. You get it. You, how much is a pint? Huh? A pint. Wait, how much is a pint? Pint's eight out, 16. So that's pounds. like about five, it's like half a liter. Half a liter, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, it's like going to the blood bank. That's terrible. How do you get it? <laughs> you, well, you'd get a sicker. I, I, do, I created 50 homunculuses. You know how they have the gallon donors oh. and the thing? You could do that. So yeah, you can donate. So if you're like poor, so poor people and well, it has to be yours. I don't oh, think, no, that's what it's going to be. I don't think. Oh, so but so but, if you want to make extra money as a magic, could you adopt a homunculus? Be high level. That's really what the question is. Could you control? Oh, you. I'm sorry, David. The control of the yeah. magic user, and it's all there. So the magic user. So is that the grog line? The Hold on. This is not the grog line. It's my daughter again. Does she not know that I'm on this like the grog talk? This is she's not streaming really it right now. Well, she's not streaming it right now because I had. Maybe, maybe she wants. She's well, I'm really angry because I told her. Right. I let her. I know she knows about the grog talk because I told her the other day that we were what 300 and. That's right, 339 in Sweden. In Sweden. Right. So she knows that I'm doing. And it. I have the chart to prove it. Okay. And, and in fact, because of her disruption, we're now 356. Oh, no, this is great. The homunculus. Mm -hmm. Its bite causes sleep. Yeah. So yep. it bites. Now it's got a hit, of course. It's only two hit dice. Hey, two hit dice. Well, you know what two hit dice is it amazing. Can come up upon people, bite them. And so I guess you use this to track, basically. The yeah. homunculus is, is in lieu of a ranger. Like, I don't need you. I've got a homunculus. Yeah. Right. And it's not... Well, a, what a, how, I, how, I, how I used to use the homunculus was I would actually have... Uh, as a... Um, so that they'd be following the party and the eventually...
it seems like something's around us, you know, and you'd just be, what is that lurking in the, because they're a foot and a half tall, they're 18 inches, so they're small, yeah. and they're following all the other rules for everything that's small, you know, they just have to be silent, and it can fly, so it's got wings, and it's got the, the flight, you know, it's 18-inch movement flight, so it can definitely get away if it needs to. Two-hit dice means that it's like, what, Thacko, uh, 18 or 17 or something, so, you know, it's better than the 12th level magic user. Right. <laughs> James, do you have who's the magic user in your current group? Uh, uh, Nico and uh, Jason's spouse. What level are they? Oh, uh, he's level? ninth level now. So, but yeah, I, mending that'll be the mission. I don't think he has mending, so he would have to. Uh, there'd be a big quest for that. They'd have to go probably to, to <laughs> the ask, quest for mending. That's right, the quest for mending. Oh, come on, no, no, no. This is what you have to do. Drop, help him out. Drop a mending scroll in there. Is that all they need? Drop the requisite scrolls mm -hmm. in there so they can get one of these things. And, and know what you do then. You don't tell them about this. You see if they're listening. Drop, wow. the, mending, drop the spell scrolls in there together. Like, what do you need? You need a mending. Mirror image. They, I'm sure they have mirror image. Well, it would be ironic. He has 18 intelligence and he can't learn the spell. Uh, he'd have to roll that it for That would be hilarious. Oh, wait a second. But no, but, you need to, but if it's on a scroll. A scroll he could do it with, but then he'd only get one homunculus. To David's point, you have to learn because yeah, if he hasn't hit his maximum per level, you can have right. an army of homunculi. He could have homunculi, so yeah. you can make as many. Right, you, it costs money. How much does it cost? Two, they have tons of money. They have right, money. That, look, you're that level. It's the blood. Yeah. It's the blood. The pint of blood. <laughs> it's the blood that you have to deal with. So I, right. you know, you'd have to say, I don't know what the, what the current rule is. How many? Yeah. How many times a week you can give blood before they won't allow you? Is it once a week or something like that? So we do some saves. I think save versus something. Oh, yeah. That would be okay. good. All right. Just, roll. Well, Chance I, of death. But this is where – does it have to be all your blood? Could you, like, mix plasma in? Could you get, like, saw, no. saw the blood bank and no. identity shop? That would be amazing. No, no, no. I think it would have to be specifically the magic user because no. there's a link between the magic user and the homunculi. Because if you had a dozen homunculi, then you'd be looking – you would have – total knowledge of what each one of those is seeing and you would know what, and they would know what you're thinking. And they're like the familiar, how you can see through them all. So you then scatter them out into the the winds. But the, the big drawback is that like all things D&D uh, &D related, if an homunculi dies, then the, the magic user suffers, what is it, 2 to 20 damage. Oh, oh okay, it's 2 to 20. So therein is the risk of having more than one homunculus. Right. Is that because if you're a magic, so let's say you're a seventh level magic user, what do you have? What nine hit points? Uh, you could have anywhere between uh, you you might 17, have 17 you to have yeah, average you is two have, and a half. Right. You theoretically, if you're a seventh level magic, user, you could have seven hit points, right? You could, you could have seven, especially if you have a low constitution. So, on average, two and a half, what, no, what's two and a half is average, would be about 17 and a half, would be average. So, oh, not including wow. common bonus. So, this is an important conversation. Because even one, you could die. You could die from just one. You have one homunculus. But I'd take that over. If someone steps on the homunculus. Right. Well, you, you know this is a fireball. But yeah, you you got an army of a cacophony of uh, homunculus. This would be interesting. You could. So what you do is you you gather an army mm -hmm. homunculus like right. over like twenty years. Right. And then you send have them descend on a, a village. Right. And they could probably the entire village could go to sleep. Yeah, you can sleep the whole village. But if there's one fireball, you would explode because of that fireball, damage. I mean, you know, like he slips. 
Right. Two, well, two hit dice. They, he's, they take two. He, what Dave was saying is if the creature right. dies, you, you take two to 20. Now you have an army of these homunculi right. attacking. If five of them die, you're history. Right. I was just saying the homunculi is two hit dice. Itself is two hit dice. Right. right? But so, the fireball oh, is. Oh, no, clearly. Yeah, clearly that's the end of you. So yeah. why would you risk that? That sounds. That person's not a genius at that point. I don't think that's a. That's a yeah, who would actually. You'd make one. But, he, I, I, you know, that's probably why I didn't never. Looked at it. Same thing with Find Familiar. Oh, Find Familiar sounds great. You have a creature. Oh, you may get a quest if you're lucky or a pseudo dragon. Oh, you lose permanent hit points so if it dies. No, thank you. Here's I'll the quit. ethical question. Yeah. The, the other one on the, the Find Familiar is the brownie because it's like you're actually getting a smaller a halfling. Yeah. Like a smaller halfling. <laughs> right. Until he off gets off. Then so you lose Find Familiar gets killed. You take the damage. Permanent damage how much it's like d4 double d4 permanent reduction of hit points we should have we should have a segment being a magic user sucks right well you said first edition <laughs> sucks so that could just I be didn't say that yes you oh this campaign sucks you're right i stand corrected that's right what can about the the gem rolling when we did the gem rolling oh, you yeah. rolled the gem yeah and you thought you were doing really well because you were okay. rolling oh, 20s no, you're about pixie and, uh, right yeah. that's right and you thought you were gonna have this huge gem and you ended up and you found yeah. out that you're actually making it worse by your press and then you said this campaign sucks that is the quote of the, the I episode i don't remember Oh. So I remember that. That was funny. If, yeah. you, if you come upon a homunculus, mm -hmm. you kill it. Because the problem now is, ethically, you don't know who the magic user that's attached to. Shouldn't you just sort of like trap it? Are we we're going to deal with ethical quandaries now of the yeah. creatures? Well, Should you kill it? I, I don't think that's terrible. There's a magic user attached to it back there somewhere. Are you it could be Saul. It could be Saul. No, well, he's, he's, level, well, he's within 500 feet. So then the question is, if you're in a dungeon or a keep that you're assaulting, that you know there are enemies in there, that would be my first start. You know what you do is you capture magic users mm -hmm. and you make them create. Okay. So, so what you do is you have the magic user that's working for you mm -hmm. and he's, right. you force him to have the army of Yamakia. Yeah, I'm sure that because having a magic user in duress, which is in the Dungeon Master's Guide, that they can't do that. They say they would struggle with making homunculi for your evil overlord that would Unless you have an artifact. It doesn't talk about homunculi. It doesn't specifically talk about homunculi. You're true. So um, that is a great point, David. Thank you for that because uh, I, I thought it was really useless, but it's it's actually useful. You know what my suggestion so is? Well, it's only got one use. Right. It's a one, it's a one thing. I mean, like the, worst, the, worst, the, the most interesting thing about that spell mending is that it has the same effect whether you're a first level or whether you're a 26th level. Yeah. There is not a single variable that or element that is adjusted by level yeah so it's not an extra element so the way how i imagine mending is that your um, what you can put together probably improves in some way so if you had like a map that has gone through a, a shredder then to mend it you'd have to be a high level map a first level much user and if something was you know because like, it says that if you had a broken um, crystal vase and you put it together, then it seamlessly. And so, you know, I'm sure that somewhere there is a reason for wanting to have this spell. There's, there must have been, aside from making an homunculus, because they've put it in there. And it's it's in one of the uh, the miscellaneous section of the, in what I call the not-so-useful spell lists. Yeah, that's awesome. What's, well, a, what's a burr? You know, the spell components... For mending are either two magnets, which I find that's yeah, entertaining. Um, 
are two burrs, B-U-R-R-S. Is that like the thorny? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. What does that got to do yeah. with mending? I understand the magnets because like putting together. Right. <laughs> or, wait, no. I think I think it's because they, I think it's because they're Velcro. Yeah, oh, like they like stick together. Yeah, the burrs do. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever stepped on burrs with, with, with your painful? Uh, very painful. Yeah, that that must. They be probably good. kill you in Australia, but here they're painful. So you got. Yeah, we call them three corner jacks. Oh, nice three corner jacks. That's a awesome. Terrible style. I, I understand that. Hence my point. But David has done. He's again very persuasive. He's. It went from completely useless to a specific useless, which then goes why yeah, virtually useless. Right. Well, and this is why magic missile and sleep were the only, and read magic, detect magic. Those are the go-to spells. Mm -hmm. They're the tier one. Then, yeah. then there's tier two. Shield, shields are good. Then you've got like in terms of defense, you've got yeah. the top tier. Can you, but, but my, can you my and I don't disagree with that. But my shield is a first level fighter in front of me because that's the whole point. Now, if, if they are if they're cowardly and they keep letting, you know, if you have fighters who run out in front and they leave you in the back, then yeah, I'm as a magic user and I got one spell, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep can shield. You, can you do a reverse of mending? So can you use Ripping? it as a defensive does, spell to like crack something? Let's say someone else has a ring. Or it doesn't say like it's that. reversible. No, it doesn't say it's reversible. But you could argue that. Thought, Why not? What's the rule on reversibility? I thought as a general rule, it's reversible. It's it would say reversible. You have to your own Oh, it has to say reversible. So yeah. mending doesn't even, it's not even breaking. No. It's a, it's a powerful spell of putting things together. It's a, it's a love connection. It's, it's Saul. No, it's right. Saul. It's yeah. Saul at, at the Path of Pearl. So it's like, he's like the expert tailor. Things right. that people otherwise couldn't, like a broken ring, it can be very difficult to put back together right. for a jeweler probably. Yeah. But Saul will be like, I can make. Well, so he's like, he's identify shop and. Mending. And Shoe <laughs> repair. Mending repair. Mending. Map repair. Identify and mending. He's like one of those. I don't know if you have them in our shopping centers. Uh, we have these little boxes of people who are um, watch repairers, yep. uh, locksmiths, yep, we should. and key makers. Yeah. <laughs> so in D&D, the identifying, the mending kind of go together. Right. And all that. You, you know, anything anything that's trivial that you never for adventuring, all those spells, and all the cantrips. You would have every cantrip. They chill and touch and all the ones you saw that uh, people like B. I, I need to look up B, B again. Um <laughs> Well, summons one B. Summon one B. You have to make a zzz sound. And it summons right. one B. But, yeah, but you can use, yeah. But you know, but a well placed. Do not underestimate a well placed B. Right. Do not underestimate two magic missiles. That's what I say. Is that that's going to kill a one hit dice creature? A B is going to potentially annoy an orc. I'd rather kill it. But you know, I don't. I'm trying to be less power gamerish. You know, but that's it's taking me a while. Um, so David, it's our it's our suggestion, I, and I appreciate you with the mending. That was awesome, awesome research. That that was great. The uh, so you know since you're our guest, and we thank you for this time. I know it's getting late. Uh, do you have a suggestion for our fair listeners? Suggestion. Uh, um. Well, I was thinking about that. I was looking at. One of the inspirations I had for putting all of this together and thinking oh, I should upload or I should do something for the greater good of humanity and do this. Um, I don't know. If, have you ever have you seen the podcasts for um, Captain Courageous Black Belt Gaming? 
I've 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 viewed some of Captain Courageous. I've viewed some of Black Belt Gaming. Interested and really understand it. They do a great they do a great job. So I have I have I don't know if I've listened to everything they've done, but it's certainly um, well worth. They're on the top of yeah. With with this podcast, obviously, because I wouldn't be on a second. I wouldn't be on a substandard. Um, you wouldn't catch me on a one of those substandard right. podcasts that you hear about so often. But uh, not crack the two hundred and fifty mark in, um, in in England. Right. And, and that's why that's why I, thought, I was thinking, oh, what 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 be good? What uh, yeah yeah you know, there's this book or that or how to use an homunculus or whatever. Right. But it was like no, that's probably these are probably good starts. Wow. And good places to to, to begin. Training. Do you have a suggestion for this week? I, you know, I'm going to change it. I'm going with the homunculus. Okay, I it is that. good. I, I like the homunculus. I think it's worth trying. I'm recommending the homunculus. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know why I didn't really think about. I mean, Gollum, I've, I've thought of. You know, and, it, and you want to talk about a craziness that you have to do to create something? Gollum's right up there. Um, my suggestion is, is specifically David. I think you have a wealth of knowledge. You obviously we, we think a lot, as you said. I'm going to encourage you. Suggest that you know you need to get a game going. Find some time. Uh, and the reason the reason I say this is because I was kind of in your shoes. I think both of us were in your shoes two two to three years ago. Um, you know, I was playing with my kids a little bit, um, and then just the urge to start up again. And I looked on Meetup, and Dan had just started his game with his friend Ed. Uh, what two months before, and I started playing again regularly in July, and it's just been uh, amazing. And I don't know any of these folks, um, you know. So it's 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 definitely an opportunity. You don't particularly like them, you would yeah, for the most part, normally, right, <laughs> but, right. But they are for gaming. You wouldn't lend a car. You, you wouldn't lend them your car or um, no. lend them money or anything. No, no. That, that goes it's without. Surprising that. That I'm, you disclosed your location of your house to me. Right. Well, I've disclosed some. I mean, some po- we've had a horse, we had a party here, holiday party. So it was, it, it's, it's been, it's been a very good plus. It validated. <laughs> now the people who weren't invited to the holiday party are like, what? There was a holiday party. Well, that was a while ago. We've grown since then, and uh, you know, it'll, uh, donations will be always helpful to that. So uh, again, my suggestion is, you clearly are passionate about the game. You've, you've, you've created this work, which I think. Uh, will help people uh, really feel a style because I think there's a, nostalgia is part of it, but also it's a style of game that it's uh, you you I think people want to embrace. I mean, because I see the redos of uh, Call of Cthulhu and Traveler, and I you know I don't mind them wiping the rub, rough edges off or things that didn't make sense, but when they change the style of the game, just like you said, the idea of um, it's not adversarial per se, and I think there's more DMs who are more adversarial. But you know, it's it's a dialogue, but not in a way that is storytelling for storytelling's sake. It's this is a game first, and the actions and the reactions of the DM, uh, you're an active participant. And I think uh, there's a style that first edition has is easier to do than in fifth edition or later editions. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say fifth edition probably because I played fifth edition a number of times with my kids because that's the same game they play. And it is easier to get back to that first edition in some ways. You have to work at it. Um, whereas some of the other editions, it was uh, problematic. Uh, second edition to me is an extension of first edition. It's, it's very similar. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, not much different. But with some even worse, with some even worse um, charts in there, where they had things like blunt weapons, of like plus five versus plate mail, 
and everyone's running around with clubs. Because <laughs> all of a sudden everyone was power, power gaming with three eighteens and three nines. Right, right, yeah, doing the point, point buys and max min maxing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's there's a style play for that, and I have some players who would like to go that way. And you and you said you just gotta you gotta play the room, and as long as you're getting out of it. So, well, it's been a real pleasure. I I, I want I you know, now it's over midnight. You you you've got to get some rest. I'm sure, I appreciate. Uh, all the time and we'll definitely keep in touch and if we do a uh, live game or if there's a topic you want to come back on just uh, shoot us a note and uh, Dan do you have anything follow up for that? No just thanks David uh, you know pleasure to now have a, an Australian Viceroy That's right the Grog Australian Talk. Viceroy of Grog Talk. Thanks, thanks for helping keep, keep I'm going to get some business cards made up on that Wonderful Wonderful yeah, just send James a bill Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that could be your gift then. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much for inviting me and letting me come on and talk about the pretty much only the one of three topics that I know most about. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Well, we we appreciate it as well, and we'll talk to you soon. Uh, I'll try to get the podcast up this weekend. I'm going to have to do some uh, pretty heavy editing just to to make it uh, uh, cogent. Technology is great, but when it doesn't work, it's kind of a hassle. So. Uh, it, it may be a little bit of work for me on my end, so just be patient. But look forward to talking to you soon. Fantastic! Thank you very much, guys. All right, and so for the rest of us, uh, you're doing a great, you're doing a, a great job, and for uh, all all of your um, many, 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 many fans and uh, and uh, the the people that absolutely love listening to it, just keep it up. It's fantastic. Thank you so Thank much. You. It really it means a lot to us. Thank you very much. And so for that, I think we're going to close this episode. So I'm James. I'm Dan. And we will see you next time on Grog Talk. This is big, a pushy, a big production. All rights reserved.